Hello, I am Lisa Hunter Ryden. I'm a parent of a son with autism. I have with me today Dr. Kendall Stewart, who is my son's physician. And we have a new show that we're launching on Autism One Radio Network called the Parent and Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Great. I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to educate um, so many parents about the importance of having a team approach to healing our children. Uh, so often we're in a search for the right doctor and the right team that we have to assemble to heal and recover our children. And it's a very difficult process finding the right doctor. And I feel that one of the best things we've ever done is find you. Uh, through a parent referral a few years ago, and Jake has just been making phenomenal progress under your care. Oh, that's great. So I'm happy to introduce you to all of Autism One radio listeners, and with that, I want if you could explain kind of the history of your practice and how you got started treating kids on the spectrum. Okay, well, that's um, a real interesting story. Actually, I'm a, um, I'm a skull-based surgeon. Uh, I'm called a neurotologist. Um, and basically, I'm ear, nose, and throat boarded. Uh, I was trained in some neurosurgical techniques, and I was really trained to operate in the head. And it's kind of interesting where life takes you and how, how it makes you uh, wind up in different places. But what was unusual about uh, my background is that um, because of a default, I guess you'd say, when I got to Austin and began practicing as a younger doctor, um, uh, I was sent a lot of patients that were mostly adults who had, uh, for all intents and purposes, a sensory integration disorder of adulthood. Of course, we call those all kinds of different things like dizziness, imbalance, um, <clears throat> Alzheimer's, dementias. We call them all kinds of different um, labels because adults can tell us what's going on. And uh, basically, because I was taking care of some of these people and nobody really uh, taught me how to take care of them, I decided uh, as a young doctor to kind of launch in and uh, embrace some technology and uh, put it in my practice and and start looking at basically how the, um, the brain was receiving information and how the brain was responding to it. And what we learned fairly rapidly is that when we put a whole lot of different machines together, we were able to not only see one particular aspect of how the brain was being fed, but all the different systems that were feeding the brain and how the brain was responding. Now, when you're dealing with adults, that's really great because when an adult has an abnormality of their vestibular system or their visual system or their proprioceptive system, they can tell you exactly how they feel. And so we learned very rapidly that uh, we could identify when things were not right and when the brain wasn't feeding things properly to the brain, or excuse me, the sensory systems weren't feeding things properly to the brain. We also learned something really interesting, that no matter what age you are, your brain is like a computer, and if you put a bad program in it, uh, no matter what age you are, then the brain doesn't work as well. So people who'd come and see me and say, oh, doctor, I got dizzy, if they continued to have uh, an inner ear abnormality, they'd also say, well, doctor, I can't think, I can't focus, I can't concentrate. Um, I'm completely uh, moody. My family is, I'm about to drive my family nuts. I can't balance my checkbook. My speech is sluggish. And so we kind of got really curious about the interaction between how the brain was being fed and how the brain was functioning. And lo and behold, it just so happened at the same time that I was also operating on a lot of people who had tumors and other things in the brain. And when we'd see these nerves not working well, the way I was actually taught in the early 90s and the way some doctors still treat a lot of these nerve abnormalities is actually to go in there and cut them. And when we cut those uh, nerves uh, the way I was taught, I was just kind of curious that when I was looking at them, I couldn't tell that they were abnormal when I was looking at them under a microscope. So there had to be some reason they were malfunctioning and there was a big movement going on in medicine at that time, kind of linking inflammation of the nerves to dysfunction and so we decided to start biopsying some different areas and using some special techniques and we started identifying uh, viral infections of those nerves in particular the ones that are pretty well um, localized to many of the nerves we call cranial nerves was the herpes family in particular chickenpox and shingles virus varicella zoster and so based on a clever hunch, which was probably more luck than anything, I decided that the medications that we would use to take care of people who had chronic infections in that category, that we could just use some pretty safe medicines and give it a try. And lo and behold, we started being very successful at not only being able to identify when people had problems as adults, that we could then treat them with medicinal medications and start to improve the function of their 
systems and that they would then secondarily improve in our diagnostic tests and then functionally improve in their focus, their concentration, their short-term memory, their uh, fine motor skills, and everything else. So, so basically I spent the last half of the 1990s kind of learning how to do that in adults. But then what was really neat is that we had a lot of patients of ours who were parents and grandparents of kids with spectrum disorders. Okay, and it was so pronounced that um, several of them had noticed that when they looked at their child or grandchild who had these disorders, they saw a lot of what they were experiencing in that child. And so I had a few of them approach me and said, you know what, if you can see it in me, what if we just do this to my child and where can we go from there? And so we decided to do that. And at the very same time, uh, I think everybody was starting to become kind of interested in viral infections and and uh, in, in autism and spectrum disorders. And, and so lo and behold, I got invited to start talking in the autism community about how we kill viruses. So pretty much people know me as I'm kind of the viral guy, okay? <laughs> and uh, so we started doing that, and I'll never forget my first um, talk was to uh, about 1,000 occupational therapists in Dallas. And they asked me to come up there and show them how to see sensory integration because we felt like we could actually see sensory dysfunction in, in adults for sure. And we were becoming fairly confident that we could start seeing it in a lot of children who were high-functioning. And uh, I got a kind of a rude awakening during that uh, lecture on uh, how sophisticated uh, occupational therapists are and how sophisticated clinically they were and how I felt like in a lot of ways from our doctor standpoint, we were way behind in um, our knowledge. And so um, I decided to come back to Austin and I decided to start uh, seeing some of these kids and the first thing we wanted to know was what was the difference between a sensory integration disorder and an autistic spectrum disorder because I was scouring the literature and I could not find the difference and a lot of people were using those interchangeably mm -hmm. so what happened is I had a PhD working for me at the time and we decided to put out a, um, a basically just a general search and offer uh, that if you had a spectrum disorder no matter what how severe bring the child in and we'll, we'll give a free test to you and what we really wanted to know is when we looked at this this device that we tend to use, a group of devices that we tend to use, um, and you had an autistic spectrum disorder, how well was the brain being fed by its sensory information? So we tested a couple of hundred kids, and lo and behold, the worse the information that's being fed to the brain, the worse the brain functions. And so that was kind of a, a landmark step for us. And um, so you know very slowly we started building our reputation I'd say that was about 2001 2002 and uh, I was using antivirals just like we did and mostly Valtrex, uh, Fambir, Acyclovir for the herpes family at that time and um, you know when you start treating these kids and you see even inklings of improvement um, if you're the kind of doctor that really um, cares for these children uh, you just it's never satisfying for you and so you have to look further and look further you can't be a technician doctor for these type of kids you have to be a doctor who's always searching for the answers and so um everything kind of um went on from there we started treating uh many many hundreds and now many thousands of kids and uh, a unique perspective is is that you know I, I had to step back at some point in my career in 2004 2005 and kind of ask myself why people come to see me uh, because, you know, a lot of doctors, you, patients come to see you to get instant gratification. Okay, I got a headache, I need a headache medicine. And that's symptom medicine, and I think everybody knows that well. But in these kids, uh, you're never going to be satisfied if you're doing that from a pa parent or a patient. And so I really realized that people were just coming to, to have the body, or for me, to have me help the body heal itself. And that kind of homeopathic uh, philosophy has really paid off because when you really start diving into a lot of the later, the newer findings and the biomedical interventions and all these other immunological, physiological, biochemical abnormalities that, um, you know, we really have a, uh, you have to have a lot of knowledge, you have to have a lot of patience, and uh, you have to um, understand that you don't know it all, And uh, but if you try and you do it safely and carefully, that you can make some huge impacts in these children's lives. Well, um 
one of the things that so impressed me when we first started coming to see you was that you weren't treating our symptoms. We had been to many, many doctors before we came to see you, and they treated Jake's symptoms and treated it with antipsychotic drugs. We had um, all sorts of things that were prescribed, not all of them we followed. And here I meet you, and you're an MD, and with that, a former surgeon. So um, you really took me by surprise when you had some homeopathic and alternative approaches. And it was actually very refreshing because around the, <laughs> it was a, it is a compliment because around the time that uh, before I came to see you, I started researching biomedical intervention, and a lot of that, as you're aware, is nutrition and diet related, and homeopathic. And so I will tell you that um, I love that experience. I, I I remember thinking at the after that first appointment, wow, he just gets it, and um, then I realized what all the the excitement was about every time people would talk about you their eyes would light up and so now we're so happy to be patients here but um since it's my turn with the mic i believe i will uh, tell you a little bit about jake before we started to come to see you because sure. i'm not sure if you're even aware of some of the early history with jake i'll try to do this in a quick amount of time um i had a normal pregnancy and normal delivery jake was uh, uh right on time at 38 weeks I vaccinated him at birth with a hepatitis B vaccine, um, and then I kept on with the vaccine schedule. And uh, you know, I I believed in traditional medicine, so uh, we'll save the vaccine discussion for another show, which I know a lot of people have questions on that, and they'll be interested in hearing your opinion on that. But we won't do that today. But I will say I saw uh, the same thing that a lot of your patients have said, and that is that around 12 months of age, we saw regression. Uh, I can trace it back to baby photos where Jake stopped looking at us. He seemed like he was unaware of the world around him, unaware of people. Um, he uh, started toe walking and spinning in circles, having tantrums, dropping himself on the floor, um, had chronic diarrhea and frequent night wakings, which is very familiar to a lot of parents listening. So we did what every parent would do, and we took him to the pediatrician. The pediatrician gave us more vaccines to support his immune system, antibiotics for chronic ear infections and other infections, and um, sent us for a hearing test, which was fine. And I know you as an ENT are familiar with how that goes. So we did see an ENT who had the uh, uh, told us, hey, he's had strep five times in one year. Let's, let's do an adenoidectomy and thyroidectomy on this kid. And so he was two years old when we had that surgery and then tubes put in the ears. Uh, that did help. He didn't have strep after that. Um, but the, all of the autistic-like symptoms persisted, and they got worse, uh, much worse, a lot of stimming, tantruming. Finally, we took him to a neurologist who did an EEG, no abnormal brain activity, um, really couldn't tell us anything more than he has PDD-NOS, which I found later is a commonly used vague term for pervasive developmental delay, nonspecific origin, which doesn't tell parents a lot, and the neurologist could really prescribe um, a prescription drug to control behavior, but wasn't giving us any idea on nutrition, on homeopathic methods, on things that were less, um, that had less risk of adverse side effects. He did, however, give us some advice. He said, you know, you may want to rule out food allergies. So then it was on our way to the allergist. So pediatrician, ENT, neurologist, now the allergist, fourth doctor. Jake did have multiple food allergies causing GI issues. We did a challenge and avoidance diet. Through just the luck of finding this on the internet, I found the gluten casein free diet, started that, and then he did begin to speak. So I knew that there was something to be said for the gluten and casein antibodies, which I followed up with lab testing. Um, and again, again, we're going back to the neurologist every six months, doing a check, but not really seeing any long-term plan. And what was really difficult at the time looking back is that, you mentioned this in the beginning, is that we saw a lot of specialists. We saw numerous doctors. We saw OTs, PTs, speech therapists, uh, early childhood specialists, psychologists, but none of them talked to one another, and none of them could give us a roadmap for how we were going to heal and recover our son. Further, none of them told us autism was treatable. They said, well, just get used to it. This is going to be your life. You, know, you may want to make plans for the fact that he's going to just not really get any better. And then we found you. <laughs> so I will say it was a long journey before you met Jake. Uh, he was six years old when we started coming to see you. 
So um, with that, though, I, I really wanted to hand it over to you and uh, have you tell the audience what what you saw in Jake when you when we first started coming and what was your impression. Well, you know, first of all, I want you to um, back up a little bit through you know Jake's history of care because you know I hear that multiple times a day. Uh, practically every new patient that walks in here has gone down a road fairly similar to that because everybody wants to get their child well and certainly the doctors who were treating him are all doing it according to their plan or their thought process and that's the frustrating thing with these kids is that um, without having a, a great coordinated care model of professionals talking to each other, parents, professionals listening to parents, um, you really get yourself stuck into kind of a traditional model that uh, uh, doesn't back up enough to give you enough um, insight into understanding it because the problem with the spectrum disorders, uh, sensory integration, however you want to define them, is that um, they're multifactorial. And overall, um, the biggest thing that I've had to learn because, you know, I'm a nerve doctor. And so I used to think people came to see me because their nerves were abnormal. And that's true. When they get here, their nerves are not working right or their nerves are not feeding their brain information or their sensory system, which is part of the nervous system, is not working well. But Really, um, what we found in that is basically just inflammation, and we'll talk about that in, in, with care um, all through this. But you then realize very rapidly that the knowledge base of all the people who are studying this, uh, everybody's right in their own way. And if you're not going to assimilate uh, data, you're going to be deficient as a physician. And so um, the hardest thing for me to learn is that autism is an immune disorder that creates abnormalities in other systems. Okay, now that immune disorder can be based in biochemical, genetic, metabolic, um, uh, possibly in mitochondrial. I mean, we can go down the road and talk as deep as you want to talk. Um, but the whole idea is that there's not one way to become a spectrum person. Now, there are more than likely. Um, is a group of people who are genetically predisposed, and that's what we're learning. It's not everybody. Now, I used to think that everybody could get it, okay? So I used to say, oh, no vaccines for anybody, or, you know, we have to be careful with everybody. And, you know, I think to a certain degree that's probably, if I was a parent, that's the way I'd feel. Um, but clearly the more we learn, the more we're learning that there are this genetic subtype of people that are highly uh, prone to these problems, and that's why you see it in families. And it's not uh, rare by any stretch of the imagination. In some, um, in some cultural uh, subpopulations, you're probably talking 40% of the people who have this genetic subtype. Well, you know what? You mentioned that earlier in the, our discussion. You said that a lot of you start treating the parents, and then they said, hey, can you treat my kids too? Correct. And I know in our family, we have a long family history of allergies and asthma and immune disorders. And um, I can tell you, I've talked to a lot of parents that have similar backgrounds in autoimmune disorders or in even psychological disorders and depression and things like that. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There's this genetic predisposition. Absolutely. And I think that we're getting to the point where we can really prove it and it's uh, aiding our treatment tremendously. Now, the interesting thing is, is that what really helped me personally as a physician was taking care of all those adults before I took care of these children. And I think that's the disadvantage that a lot of doctors who take, um, take care of a lot of these spectrum children is if you don't have that dual um, experience of taking the adult literature and knowledge on neuro neurological abnormalities and um, neuroimmune abnormalities and then taking the, the pediatric literature and the spectrum literature and being able to merge that, you're actually... Uh, you're minus 50% of the information that you need to really understand it. And so the merger of those really helped us. And frankly, when, when you talk to an adult and can see this is how the adult feels when this pattern of information is being fed to the brain, then it makes you understand the children a whole lot more. So when I first saw Jake, you know, the advantage that we have, and, and specifically I think it's the only advantage that I have, surely there's lots of doctors out there that are just as intelligent as I am and as uh, you know, curious as I am, and so it's not about being curious or smart. It's about just having tools and understanding how to use them. You know, by us being able to look at how the brain is being fed information, the wonderful thing that we were very excited to see is that in most cases, now I won't say all because that's not true, but in most cases, we're really dealing with in children 
like Jake, with nothing wrong with the brain proper. Now, if they have seizures, of course, a seizure is an abnormality in the brain. And uh, that does not mean the brain can't function right. It certainly can't do it during a seizure episode. But for the most part, the brain is really not affected. We were really pleased to see that when we started looking at all the information coming to the brain, proprioceptive, basically touch and feel, vision, and vestibular cochlear information, that it was the abnormalities in the delivery of the information that was making the brain not able to perform its developmental requirements at the proper time. So okay. I'm just going to interrupt as a parent. So some big words there, right? Proprioceptive and okay. vestibular, which I know now and how to say because I've been a patient. We've been a patient of yours for a while. But um, what I'm hearing is that these kids have systems that are functioning, but and they're getting the, the input, but the brain's not processing it correctly. Yeah, to a certain degree, that's right. Um, basically, the way I like to explain it is, um, you know, the brain likes consistency. And so one big problem is inconsistency because, as you know, these children almost universally have good days and bad days. Mm -hmm. And that means that their brain is receiving different information on those days. And we have essentially tools and testing devices that be able to prove that the information is different. And the reason we know that that's the fact is because the worse the information is, the worse the, the child acts that day. So it's not too hard to see. We also um, know that even if the system is sending information, the brain likes to work in, in groupings. Basically, the way that your brain is most comfortable is when your muscles and your eyes and your ears and vestibular system, the inner ear, are all telling you the same thing. Okay, so if they're all telling you the same thing, the brain's perfectly happy, you're very content, you're not hyper, everything is just great with the world, and your brain will process information great, and your mood is calm. But if the if the um, brain is receiving conflicting information where the muscles, the eyes, and the ears are all telling it something different, then the brain has to kind of slow down and say, okay, well, which one of these do I really need to use in this situation? And so what it really does is it just makes the brain second-guess itself, and that just slows the processor, the reticular activating system, the part of the brain that's the processor, down ever so slightly. So when that happens in an adult, they'll tell us, well, I can't think, I can't focus, I have short-term memory, concentration, I'm very distractible. But unfortunately, that when our processor slows down in the brain, our emotional center then goes the opposite way and supercharges. And when it supercharges, that's when we get into the anxiety, the hypersensitivity reactions. And so that general concept is one that we have to follow in these kids. And so very simply, the more coordinated the information being fed to the brain, the calmer the brain is and the more functional you are. Now, the problem is, is that you've got to have tools to be able to measure that. And the other problem is, is that it could be perfect one day uh, or it could be perfect even every day for a week, but that's not enough to get the brain perfectly happy with it. Mm -hmm. The problem is consistency. And so what we've then become aware of is that we need to recognize where the abnormality is, recognize the timing when the abnormality happened. So you said that Jay got into trouble at about 12 months of age, mm -hmm. okay? And really, because of the way the brain develops, when we go back to birth, you know, at birth, the touch and feel system is developed. At three months, all of a sudden, a baby will start looking at you and tracking with their eyes if they're in normal development. And then about seven, eight, nine months, they start sitting up and trying to pull up and using their vestibular system for balance, their three-dimensional referencing. And the reason they're doing that, or the reason it takes that different timing, is not because of the sensor. It's because the, the, the nerve is essentially growing myelin. And myelin is the insulator of nerves that allows the electrical signal coming from that sensor, whatever it's the ear or the eye, mm -hmm. to be delivered accurately. So the only reason the vestibular system is the last one to develop is because it needs the most inflammation or the most um, insulation on the nerve to deliver the proper electrical signals. Now, here's the problem. Um, what we learned was very simple, is that as we started looking at how the brain was being fed and all these children that were abnormal, by looking at specific patterns, we could tell exactly when they got interrupted meaning that we could tell within, you know, a couple of months, okay, basically a general time period that this is where the interruption happened. Mm -hmm. And what that interruption was was not damage. 
It was just a stall. It was a stalling development, so they got stuck there. Okay? So that just that statement you made makes me think that it's not permanent damage. No, definitely not. And that we prove that every day to ourselves, and that was a great blessing when we finally figured it out. Which is why maybe our kids are recovering. Correct. So, you know, basically to give you a, a, a descriptive answer, if a child gets affected in utero um, and they're affected and their nervous system is irritated, inflamed, and stalled in its development at birth, then you've got a massively autistic child. I mean, mm-hmm. practically an institutionalized child, okay? And so people always beat themselves up thinking they did something during pregnancy and may and they may have indeed done that or accidentally or on purpose. I mean, there's lots of different things that can be involved, but for the most part, if your child is not massively autistic, you probably did not affect that child negatively in utero other than passing on your genetics. Okay. And then as we go up, if you've got a child who actually is using their eyes and can see two dimensional objects, but is still nonverbal, you've got a child that's already gone past another milestone. And those children are children who are typically nonverbal stem with their stem with their hands quite a bit and um, in general you know what I call a, a severe ADHD okay mm-hmm. only because hyperactivity with your hands stemming is kind of how the early doctors described it and then as you get further along uh, when you get to about nine months uh, you'll get children who uh, show a little interest and in, developed in their motor coordination kind of like Jake did and started to probably walk and then all of a sudden boom there's a major a major peak of onset of these disorders right around 12 months of age okay now my personal feeling on that is that because we have an immune dysfunctional child by definition and we'll talk about that uh, I guess on another show um, the only thing that's massively different about vaccinations or exposure at 12 months of age is when we give the varicella and MMR vaccine together which are all live viral vaccines so it's a much different animal in vaccines giving a live virus, um, a, a true infective agent, the total agent, versus giving a little piece of an agent like a protein or a, a little sugar or something that um, that's going to give us an immune reactivity. And so, you know, we ha- we certainly have strong beliefs based on what we've seen. And to make a long story short, I know I'm getting off um, off topic, but what we saw with your experience with Jake is that that 12 month more than likely was linked to something that was inflammatory and caused inflammation. So the way that we think of the spectrum disorders now is that you have this genetic tendency, okay? And certainly not everybody who has these genetics gets a spectrum disorder, but you have this predisposition. And then you gotta have the right trigger, which is usually to cause a lot of inflammation to then send you into the problem. So vaccines are a real common cause of that. I've seen it happen from trauma. You know, a child gets run over or, you know, falls off and hurts themselves and is in the hospital. I've seen it happen from operations. I've seen it happen from infections of other sources. So it takes a massive inflammatory response to set it off. So do vaccines cause every case of uh, autism or spectrum disorders? And the answer is no. Yeah, actually, um, I just got back from Autism One in Chicago, and there were some speakers that talked about autism in the unvaccinated population worldwide in cultures where they're seeing a lot of what we're seeing, but there's been a lot of um, theory that it's infectious agents, that it's toxins in the environment. There's been a lot of, uh, there was a lot of discussion at this particular conference on organopesticides. So um, these kids then it sounds like have a tipping point, right? They're genetically predisposed and then there's a trigger and then there's that tipping point where they just, they lose the skills that they've lost. Right, and you know, the genetics are a group of genetic abnormalities. It's not just a, a single genetic abnormality. It's a group of ones that obviously from the knowledge base that we've obtained from all kinds of doctors has to do with the removal of toxins, the removal of heavy metals, has to do with the ability for you to to methylate and deliver vitamins properly, uh, to absorb vitamins properly, to uh, process dopamine in the brain properly. I mean, we can just go down the list and can even get a lot more complicated than that. The whole foundation is that what's important when you look at these children as a general 
uh, as a treating physician. And frankly, the reason it's so important for the physician to listen to the parent, because the parent knows the story, the doctor doesn't. And you can't get up there and look at any child and say, oh, I know what's wrong with this child. I can just treat them this way and they'll get better because it's a different way that you get there in every child. So it's very, very important for the physician to take the time to sit down, back up, listen to the problem, and be very open-minded um, from an educational standpoint and um, understand it. So when we first saw Jake, okay, I'd seen what you've been through and listened to your story and sounds very classic, had no doubts about it. But the problem was is that by treating with a, a, a neurostimulant, um, you may get some improvement in symptoms. Uh, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get the opposite. But you're not going to be fixing the child for long term, and you're certainly not going to progress them down the pathway toward normalcy or toward educational uh, or even lifestyle uh, normalcy. So we had to then understand that most parents who come to see us have been to doctors who know what they're doing to a certain degree. And I don't say that with... Um, you know any critique but the problem in treating these children too that you have to understand is one what you know today is not going to be what you need to know next month and you know most of my patients will know and you probably know this very well that almost every time you see me there's something a little bit new being well, added on to the knowledge base and that's what i love um about you is that when when we come for each appointment scheduled or unscheduled is uh this past week when jake was having some issues and we brought them in, you always have new information and you always are willing to listen to new information. Um, I can bring you a book that I just read and said, hey, Dr. Stewart, this is a really great book and you've read it in a couple weeks usually because you're a speed reader. Um, or, um, and, and going back, actually, I want to make another point to, uh, to what you said about you know, the neuroimmune disorder is you were the first doctor that actually described Jake's autism as being a neuroimmune regression or with autistic symptoms. That was the first time that I thought about autism as being a medical disorder. All the doctors previously had made me think that autism was genetic or that it was psychiatric. And that's where I think we got really steered off course. I remember our very first visit to you. Um, now I have a biochemistry background, but this was still difficult for me. And that's when you pulled out Jill James's study in the methylation pathway. And you actually showed me all the biochemistry and showed me all of the areas where there was, uh, there was, Jake had abnormal homocysteine levels. And I remember we talked about the B12 and B6. Uh, we talked about methionine and all those other components in that pathway. And then as you measured those and showed me the results on paper, I became a believer and I said, wow, this is truly a medical disorder. And why doesn't the rest of the American Medical Association acknowledge that? Why do not all doctors acknowledge that? And that was, you know, I, I left here thinking, wow, we've learned a lot, but Gosh, why do, why do people not yeah. understand that? Well, you know, a lack of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the answer for that. You just have to, um, well, we have to educate them. And frankly, you know, the funny thing is, just because of what I do, there's not, even the way I was trained, there's not a lot of, a lot of doctors who do the type of medicine that I was trained to do. And I'll never forget a, an older doctor when I came in, at the end of my fellowship and said, I need to ask you some hard questions that I don't understand. And and he looked at me and said, well, you know, you don't understand you still because I can't answer those questions for it. It's your turn to tell me what the answers of those are. So we've got to, we've got to think that we're not very smart because we really aren't as doctors. The smarter we think we are, the, the worse doctors will become. So we've really got to go into this thing open-minded, knowing that there's so many different layers that we're going to just be amazed every month or two by the new things that we've learned. And if you take that approach, you're going to learn it well. So how do you feel when I come in um, and I've Googled just about everything I can find and I come in and say, Dr. Stewart, we need to try this new supplement because the parents are telling me it's really great. Right. And I'm sure you hear that a lot. I'll hear it all the time, <laughs> every day. Uh, that's great because that's my edu that's the education. I mean, you don't learn. And I certainly spend a lot of time reading uh, information both on the Internet, both professionally, et cetera. And really, you're not going to find it in any particular place because it's all over the literature and different things. And I'm always amazed that when I sit down in the medical literature and start following a pathway, especially a biochemical pathway where it leads to, is just will blow your mind. But if I don't have, if I don't ever stop to listen to my patients, I mean, we're charged as a community to take care of these kids. And I think we're all learning. And I think our legislator, legislatures, and 
federal government or it's all going to realize that we're coming to a crisis issue because the more of these kids that develop and they grow and they get older, if we don't answer this question, it's going to become a big community question, which it already is. Well, I was um, at the conference and one of the speakers said we have approximately 2 million kids on the spectrum in the United States today with only 500 doctors that are treating or what you consider specialized in Mm -hmm. the biomedical treatment of autism. 500 doctors for 2 million kids. That explains why these doctors have year, one year, two year, three year waiting list. Correct. You know, and that's also the thing, you know, the the whole reason we started the Neurosensory Centers of America was to try to get this technology out there, get this tool into the hands of other doctors who were taking care of these kids. But then internally, we're also trying to train doctors and put them out into our facilities to, to try to meet the need because... You know, it's the last thing you want when, you know, I've got four kids, and if I get out a problem and I called the doctor and they said, oh, yeah, I'll see you in nine months, you can just uh, you can send me through the roof, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, so what we try to do is make sure that we're accessible to a reasonable degree when, when patients need it, and we just try to keep up. And I think that, um, you know, those are important things. I mean, you've got to take care of these kids because you love it. You can't just take care of it because it's something that's, you know, it's got to be special to you because there's so much to learn and so much to know. Well, and you end up not only taking care of the kids, like you said, but you end up taking care of their parents oh, because no quite doubt. often their parents have neuroimmune disorders. I know uh, there's many people I've talked to that the whole family comes to see Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And um, so at that rate, you know, you have the two million kids and then you have their parents and their siblings. We're going to be into a really uh, difficult uh, you're right. Difficult place. Um, I was going to ask you. So you, you have seven clinics across the United States right now. We have we have two clinics that I that uh, that I essentially own and am responsible for the medical care for. We direct five others. Okay. Um, they're run by various professionals, uh, developmental optometrists, um, uh, uh, other people who do spectrum disorders and specific uh, with specific backgrounds, but. The, the other clinics, we license our technology and we basically teach them our, our protocols and it's up to them to take care of it. So I don't want to represent that I uh, they, they follow ex- everything that I do at each of those clinics, but certainly those clinics are there to assist with just about anything, excuse me, that you would need in this, um, in this realm. Well, I, I'm really excited about the coordinated care model that you've mentioned before, and I know that's a term that I haven't heard spoken before. Um, just really the integration, the team approach between the, the doctor, the therapist, the educators, and the family members. And truly, from a parent's perspective, I know it takes a team to help heal and recover our children. I couldn't do it with just one professional. And so from a physician's perspective, um, how can we do a better job at this coordinated care model? Well, you know, I think um, the thing that I've been thinking of pretty much nonstop over the last um, six months is the frustrating feeling that uh, most of the the mothers and fathers have that they essentially feel like the quarterback of the care team, okay? And um, invariably what they do is they sit down and and the parents are in charge of the care and they're just running around getting opinions from all these people and uh, they're responsible for trying to decide who's telling them what and trying to go to conferences and hear this extensive biochemistry and and trying to figure out uh, how to take care of their child, and that's really not the way it's supposed to be. Well, and, and you're assuming that it's two parents. Uh, we meet a lot of single parents yeah. because the divorce rate in our community is as high as 90%, um, and in some marriages, one parent takes the lead as the, the head caretaker, and then another one kind of sits back and is either struggling with grief, feelings of grief, denial, etc. And so um, I know that we have, um, I know we have, we have emotion or family issues in our own community just because the stress of raising these children is so difficult. Sure. Well, you know, the first thing I usually say when I see somebody, I don't know if I said it to you, uh, Lisa, but, you know, I basically tell the parents, uh, why don't you just let me be quarterback for a little while, okay? And then I'll give the team back to you. Because really, you know, the funny thing about taking care of these kids is that timing is so important okay and the hard thing about that is that you can know all the right things to do as a doctor Um, meaning that you can know have all the knowledge but the art of it and the ability to use the right tools to tell where you are in the nervous system development allows you to then get the timing right so a lot of times when parents come to see me who are just like you they've done all the right things 
they've been all over the place and they've gotten multiple opinions from different doctors and they're doing a lot of the things that are just right but they're not doing them at the right time or they're trying to do them all together so they'll come in with grocery bags full of supplements and you know they'll you're come not talking in. about me are you <laughs> <laughs> well uh, you know and there's give me nothing. my spreadsheet of supplements <laughs> well you know there's nothing wrong with that and certainly um you know i'm not the one to ever critique that type of thing i mean there are in my in general to me there are two philosophies of uh, supplementation and treatment of these children uh, one philosophy is what i call the shotgun approach let's just um, measure everything we can possibly measure and try to supplement it our way out of it and that in my hands has not been successful uh, the other way to do it is actually what I call the intersection model, which is where we still take all the information for, for the most part, and we, then we then take the intersection of all the different biochemical, um, immunological, neurological pathways, and we find out where the intersection is messed up. You know, where's the light broke? And you fix the light. Okay, and if you fix the light, then the traffic starts flowing smoothly, and you come out, so you wind up less supplements, um, less medications, and sometimes you have to work to get there. Well, and I think it's important, I, from what I've learned, is to communicate with your doctor about all the supplements that you have your child on and not be embarrassed that you're doing something very unusual. Um, I know a lot of parents that don't necessarily, it's not that they're intentionally withholding information, they just don't tend to tell their doctor the whole list of supplements. And so when they bring the child in and they're having regression, you don't really know from what if it's not a protocol that you've recommended. And that's what I really have learned (laughs) coming to your clinic for the last few years with Jake is after each visit, we get a roadmap from you. We get, here's what you need to do. Here's the dosage of the supplements. Don't deviate from this. And let's see him in three months and look at the progress. And then you measure that progress so we know what's working. Um, Because I do remember a time we had Jake on, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but probably over 50 different supplements if I add up everything. And how in the world do you know if there's regression or progress? You know, parents would say, well, he's doing so much better. How can you explain that? I'm like, okay, let me go through the spreadsheet. And that becomes very difficult. That's why you hear a lot about parents saying during the summer, take a supplement vacation, go off everything, and then slowly add those back in so you know what's working. But if you're not under the care of a physician, you're really kind of shooting in the dark. Well, let me see if I can back up and and if you'll indulge me for a second, I'll give you to me what I feel like is a simplistic understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. And instead of trying to heal a nervous system, I want you to talk about something that's probably a lot more practical for people. So let's say I hurt my knee, okay? So what happens? My knee swells up and doesn't work very well. And if I keep walking on it and I keep inflammation in it and I don't eat right and I don't go to rehab, uh, then how well is my knee going to heal? not that's exactly right so most people understand that pretty well well that's the healing methodology that we have at any point of the body and it doesn't matter where it is okay if you've got an injury you're going to have inflammation okay an injury is a relative term if you've got an abnormality you're going to have inflammation once you've got the inflammation the first step you have to take to heal anything is you've got to get rid of the inflammation okay so you can put as much nutrition in that body. So let's say we got an athlete with a hurt knee. He can eat beautifully and just take all the supplements he wants. But if he's still walking on that knee and got going to rehab, is that knee going to heal? So many times we get the cart before the horse. Okay, so the philosophy for healing the nervous system is very, very simple, just like it is to heal the knee. Get rid of the inflammation. Now that might involve killing several types of infective agents because the immune system is sensitive and responsive to just about anything that stimulates it. And the more things you have stimulating it, the more aggressive it is toward inflammation. So if you've got yeast and you've got viruses and you've got parasites and you've got all these other opportunists taking advantage of it, you do have to go in initially and knock those back. Okay, And frankly, that's the only purpose of the antivirals. Everybody thinks that I think antivirals cure everything and that's not true it just antivirals take the first step toward healing now once you've got that inflammation controlled you have to be able to recognize it and that's where our sense review system comes in because you can actually see it in fact when we first saw Jake I was going to get back to that 
what was very profound on his testing is that the two inner ears were functioning completely different. And I was amazed by those results. Right. So when your ears, you have to compare one ear to the other ear to find the middle of your head. And if one ear is different than the other ear, you ain't going to find the middle of your head. Right. And so what this meant is that after all this stuff you'd done, you had not taken the first step to cure Jake. So the first thing we did with Jake was start him on the antivirals to knock out this inflammation. We also probably checked him for yeast and other things. And sometimes you have to kill yeast and control it. And you, sometimes you have to change the pH of the body to give a better environment. I mean, there's lots of little tricks you have to do. But you don't really want, and certainly you have to control inflammation through dietary modifications. And GFCF is a good idea. I mean, frankly, I like to check them because if you're going to be sensitive to GFCF, or gluten and casein, you're going to be sensitive to other things too. Well, and that's what we learned too, right? Was that uh, he was allergic to rice and corn. So those are staples in right. the GFCF diet. So then we learned we had to really go on an allergy rotation diet. And until you do the lab testing, you really can't know that. And right. unfortunately, a lot of parents say, hey, I heard from another parent this diet really works. And I'm not disputing it. It works in a lot of our kids. But uh, more and more parents I talk to, because of the issues with uh, the gut, you've got to eliminate soy or eggs or yeast or other allergens. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about the metals because I know that's been an ongoing issue. Um, recently, however, though, in the last six months, Jake's metals are clear. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he had seven metals. I think two of them were off the chart, if I recall, the lead and mercury. But um, I remember you, you said, let's, you, we had this little discussion, right? I, I call it a discussion. <laughs> no, I, I don't call it a disagreement. But um, I remember being very, um, I am a zealous, overzealous parent sometimes, but I remember saying to you, we just need a chelate. We need a chelate. We need to get these metals out. And you said, let's treat the inflammation and the metals will clear on them their own. Now, we did do some oral chelation. I remember you prescribed some oral sure. chelation. But at the same time, we were doing the, the measures to reduce the inflammation. And I was absolutely shocked when I saw the urine tox screen right around Easter time that the metals were uh, non-existent. Well, we were pleasantly shocked, too. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble here because, first of all, I'm not the first guy to ever talk about this. Certainly, the Pfeiffer Institute philosophy has probably been based around a lot of this for a long time. Um, with with metals, um, first of all, the, the verdict's not out on them. I can tell you that certainly I believe that there's a lot of children that do need chelation. Uh my philosophy is really one of fairly simple that chelation is only a means to an end. Chelation does not heal any child. But chelation, if it's necessary, is able to then reduce the metal load to the point where the child can heal. So I'm not a big fan of ongoing long-term chelation because you still don't accomplish. It's very hard, in my opinion and in my experience, to heal a child and chelate at the same time. You've got to choose what you're going to do. So if you have a child who's tremendously metal burdened, yeah, they might need to be chelated. But chelate them to the point where then you need to take a chance at then getting them healed because that's what you're really there for. Now, with that being said, if we can also identify the interruptions in the methylation methionine pathway and get reestablish the glutathione, metallothionines, and all those other things by reestablishing the missing elements, and there's no reason a child can't chelate themselves. Well, and I, I, you know, that's when I really was a believer after we had done the methyl B12, P5P shots for what, four months, and the glutathione cream. Right. And um, I just was really amazed that they seemed so simple, yet you, know, you look at that pathway and you think, is it really this simple to, to treat? Right. Well, you know, um, you know, Dr. Newbrander's idea of the methyl B12 was just an outstanding idea, and it holds up in the biochemistry. But you, you also have to, for the same cofactors, you have to address the, the folinic acid or the, the methylfolate issue, which is, you know, one of the keys to this process. And um, so, you know, there's some little tricks we use to, to manipulate those to make them work better. But in general, you know, what you just have to do, the philosophy is fairly simple once you know the information. It's just the difference is knowing the information is that you evaluate the child, you set up the plan for the child. It's different for every child. It's certainly not every child needs to be chelated. I'm very hopeful with some new ideas that we have that we can use other agents besides what we're using to chelate, maybe some natural sugars and other things to chelate that might work out really well. And it won't become such a big issue uh, or a touch point you know, uh, a volatility point with the general medical community. But certainly, you know, 
frankly, a doctor's responsibility is to his patient, period, in a, in a one-on-one situation. And I think we have a big conflict going on at the government level because the CDC is out there trying to take care of a population, which is far different than what a doctor's responsibility is. And I certainly don't think that we even need to compare the two, much less get into arguments with them over those kind of things. Uh, we just got to be able to recognize uh, which children are at risk and which children are not and find that unique biomarker. And to a certain degree, hopefully we found some things like that. Yeah, it is. It, that's a very good point. I think, um, you know, and I heard it repeatedly um, when I was at Autism One, is that every child is unique and they're an individual and they're, their, their biochemical makeup is individual and that's why you know like I can sit here and say hey we didn't really need to chelate because Jake cleared metals on his own but that may not be true like you, like you said for every child uh, it's not I and, wish it was <laughs> uh, well and that's what I'm so excited about with uh, with your coordinated care model um, I did want to announce to all of our listeners that we have a new feature that we'll be introducing um, on our next month's show where you, hopefully more than I, will answer questions from the listening audience. Um, so I wanted just to, um, to give everyone the, the email address. It is questions at drkendallstewart.com, and that's spelled Dr. Kendall is K-E-N-D-A-L-S-T-E-W-A-R-T.com. And Dr. Kendall's website is, uh, Dr. Stewart's website, I'm sorry, is uh, drkendallstewart.com. Um, and we will address those selected questions on the July broadcast um, for physician or parent. Um, and then on that broadcast, we'll also feature um, discussion on laboratory biomarkers, the genetic versus the protein biomarkers, and oxidative stress biomarkers. So it should be a really great show. So thank you for, um, for the first show. I'm real excited to communicate with everyone out there that there's really a team approach here. And um, we've just had a tremendous success story with our son. He's, I won't say he's recovered, but he's recovering. He's speaking now and writing and spelling. And I couldn't ask for more as a parent. And I'm just overjoyed every time I think about how far he's come in just a few years. Me too. Okay, thank you all.